Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. In the opening lines of his most famous poem, To Althea from Prison, Richard Lovelace writes, Stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. This line expresses a thought common among imprisoned writers across time, that no matter the conditions of imprisonment, today suggests that the relationship between our poetic traditions and bondage is more complicated than Lovelace asserts. Andrea Brady is professor of poetry at Queen Mary University of London and a fellow this year at the National Humanities Center. Her current project explores how poets have treated bondage, both literal and metaphorical, over the centuries, not only as subject matter for their verse, but as a powerful force in shaping the lyric tradition. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you. So I want to start by teasing out what this project is about with you. Um, Often in the Platonic tradition, the Boethian tradition, we are associating form with bodily confinement. Mm-hmm. Um, but you are breaking with a, a narrative, a kind of pro- progressivist narrative, um, where we think about poetry is gradually, and uh, in an evolutionary sense, being for, uh, freed from formal verse constraints. Is that correct? That's right. There's a long tradition of thinking that um, verse form is like a bodily chain that represses the spirit or the imagination of the poet. So poets have for millennia compared the experience of writing formal verse to being in fetters, in chains, being imprisoned. Um, And I was really tracing this metaphor out of a kind of interest in um, the politics of lyric poetry. I'm interested in the way that poets represent um, freedom and um, social constraint in poetry, both from a scholarly perspective and as a poet myself. Um, So as I traced this metaphor, I began to realize that you can't just talk about um, verse as fetters as a sort of metaphor without also acknowledging that poets are literally sometimes in chains and in fetters and in, in prisons. So I became very interested in the way that poets use this as a, as a metaphor of a kind of voluntary submission to self-constraint. Wordsworth writes a sonnet, uh, Nuns Fret Not, in which he compares locking himself inside the sonnet's scanty plot of ground to being locked inside a cell. Well, there's a big difference between being locked voluntarily in the cell of a sonnet and being um, physically, literally locked in a kind of cage. I was tracing the history of this metaphor. I was then thinking, too, about all of the, the writers who are themselves actually imprisoned and trying to reintroduce to the theorization of the lyrics some of the discoveries that are being made by people who are writing in conditions of actual bondage. Great. So let's talk about some specifics. Mm. Um, let's start with Wyatt, mm. who was incarcerated multiple times himself. Yeah, he's a really interesting poet. So Thomas Wyatt was a poet, a courtier, and an ambassador in uh, the court of Henry VIII. And he's often recognized as one of the, almost the initiators of uh, the English modern lyric. He drew a lot from his travels in in Italy and um, on the continent from Italian poetic forms. And he was one of the first real transmitters of Petrarch's um, sonnets to, to the English. He writes in what sometimes seem like incredibly compressed and constrained forms, such as the rondo, which are dance forms uh, based on repetition, but in Wyatt's usage of them, can start to feel incredibly 
constrained, it's very, very repetitive. And a lot of people read Wyatt's constrained verse in relation to his own life history. He was imprisoned multiple times. He was involved in the fall of Anne Boleyn and of Thomas Cromwell, who people may know from um, Hilary Mantel's books, Wolf Hall. He may have seen Anne Boleyn's execution from his window in the Tower of London. He was interrogated by the Spanish Inquisition. So again and again, he's getting caught up in the kind of carceral state. Um, and I think I'm thinking very particularly about one of his poems, um, one of his most famous poems called Whoso List to Hunt, which portrays the speaker hunting a deer deep in the forest. And he comes across this deer whom people have read as a kind of allegory for Anne Boleyn um, and says that she has, and this is the last two lines of the sonnet, she has um, graven in diamonds on her neck. She has a kind of, well, we assume it's a collar that the poem doesn't say, that says, Nole me tangre, for Caesar's I am, and wild for to hold, though I seem tame. So nole me tangre, this is Christ's expression when he is um, first risen, and Mary Magdalene finds him in, in the garden, and he says, don't touch me, um, for I've not yet risen to my, my father. But then the, the deer is also saying, I belong to Caesar as well. It's quoting another passage from, from Christ saying, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, when he's being asked about taxation. There's a real inscription on the body of this deer of sovereign power. You know, the king's pronouncement is written literally on the body of this animal. And a lot of people use this poem to think about sovereignty and uh, the repression of the individual subject in Henry VIII's court as sort of the beginning of a kind of modernity. I started to think about her as a slave. I started to think about the way that um, Thomas Wyatt, who was a good humanist, would have been um, uh, known a lot about classical slavery. And um, the slave in ancient Rome was considered a speaking instrument. So someone who was not in their own power. Um, so thinking about this creature as a slave reintroduces for me what is kind of the big theme of this whole book, which is what happens when, in these really key moments in the development of the lyric as it emerges into modernity, why does it constantly invoke this, these figures of bondage, these figures of slaves as metaphor? And what happens when we then think about those metaphorical forms of bondage in relation to some historical contexts of actual chattel slavery and mass imprisonment? Now, Emily Dickinson lived in a time of slavery, mm -hmm. but uh, omits mentions of slaves. Is that correct? Her verse is really complicated in this respect. Um, one of the great things about this project is it's allowed me to talk about all of my most favorite poets, and Emily Dickinson is one of them. And I think she's a good example of sometimes how loving a poet's work makes it hard to see some of the critiques that you might like to make of them. So one of the things that disturbs me personally about Dickinson is that even though she's living through the Civil War, her father is very involved in national politics and in the, the expansion of slavery into the new Western territories and so forth. And there are lots of reasons why she might be thinking about slavery, about the fugitive slave law um, that might have affected people that she knew. She doesn't really write very much about slavery, or when she does, she uses it as a set of metaphors for natural processes. So a lot of critics have shown that Dickinson writes more about politics than we might think. They recognize that there are certain of her poems that may be treating civil war battles. But when she does write about those battles, it's only by um, making comparisons. So for example, an autumnal landscape with lots of red leaves on it looks like a field covered in fallen soldiers and, and, and their blood. 
But that kind of tends to naturalize war. It, it suggests that, well, just like the leaves fall every autumn, so men will engage in slaughtering each other. Um, that's, you know, that's just providence. That's just nature. And there are a few other examples like that where Dickinson does sort of use some of the language of the slave auction um, or of chains and fetters, but she tends to um, not use them to make a critique of the actual institution of chattel slavery, but to make much broader metaphysical points. Um, so that, for me, is a kind of a, a, a gap in her poetics, which is consistent with across all of the writers that I'm thinking about, um, this tendency to invoke slavery as a sort of a, a metaphor for something else, but then to leave out actual slaves. You also just read the, uh, the nature of the couplet, uh, the formal nature of the couplet as, as, as fetters themselves, uh, silken fetters that you've referred to, and you're reading uh, Phyllis Wheatley against Alexander Pope in that sense. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so um, Phyllis Wheatley is someone else who's occupying a position of incredible tension because on the one hand, um, her work is promoted because she is an enslaved woman. Um, it's seen as almost miraculous that someone who came to um, New England, I think at the age of six or seven, having um, no, speaking no English, by the time she's 18, she's published a book of quite competent verse, um, the verse which is very um, modeled on that of Alexander Pope. It's influenced by Milton and has all of the kind of classical rhetoric and illusions that you might expect from a, that kind of neoclassical period of verse. And she's trying to, um, on the one hand, describe in some of her poems, like On Imagination, um, the couplet as like um, a flowery ornament or um, turning the fetters of, of verse into uh, floral garlands. Um, and this is something that's pretty consistent with some of the other writers in that period. Um, someone praises Alexander Pope in similar terms for having turned bondage into ornament um, in relation to Milton's verse. Um, but in Wheatley's case, obviously, it, it, it plays a very different function because even after she's um, manumitted and she's living in a very precarious existence um, financially and socially, she's still having to promote her work in part as the work of someone who was once enslaved and who has transcended those conditions. So she's trying to both recognize and in some cases make some critiques of slavery in the United States, thinking about it in relation to the revolutionary rhetoric of freeing the, the colonies from their enslavement to the British Empire, and at the same time um, show that she has the right and the ability, like any other human, to speak on much more general terms and not be entirely constrained by her own social position. So let's go from the written to the oral now, um, because one of the major contributions I'm seeing in this, in this reconceptualization of the lyric uh, in this project is the use of um, plantation songs, prison cell songs, chain gangs uh, songs, what Du Bois referred to as sorrow songs um, uh, as, uh, as, a, as a focus for how one, how one might reconceptualize the whole 
history and notion of what lyrics can do. Mm-hmm. This has been one of the most exciting parts of the project for me to work on, particularly being here in the South and being able to engage with some of the archives um, at, at Duke and UNC. Um, I started to read a lot of the collections of um, African-American songmaking from the end of the 19th and the early 20th century. I was really interested in the way that um, white collectors tended to represent these songs as in some ways unrepresentable. So they say, all I can do is transcribe the words, but unless you're actually there and you can hear the the birds and the crackling of the campfire and you can see people moving and you can be part of the ring shout of that kind of contagious um, rhythm and movement of the dance, this is just a kind of shadow of, of the real experience. So I was interested in this question of unrepresentability and the way that um, collectors, most famously the the Lomaxes, started to use recording technology to try to capture this sort of authentic experience of African-American songmaking. And that took me on this very interesting route through the archives here um, and through the work of these Southern agrarians. So they were um, a a bunch of academics who were um, based at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee who um, also were lamenting the loss of an oral poetry tradition. Um, And they later became um, a very influential group of critics and pedagogues who were known as the New Critics. They were also terrible racists who thought that the South had been beaten down by the Civil War, um, that its culture was the product of an elite um, who uh, who made um, song and music in their their leisure, and they completely erased and obliterated the labor of enslaved um, people of African heritage as part of this very nostalgic, sort of sepia-toned representation of the Old South. So it's very interesting to think about their th- their theorization of the culture of the South alongside this mass of works that were being pu- published at the end of the 19th and the early 20th century celebrating African-American song as the most important indigenous tradition um, uh, that was emerging as part of the new American culture. It was as if everything they then went on to um, privilege in poetry the, as new critics, impersonality, an absence of psychology, a kind of objectiveness, a separation from biography, was the opposite of the features which were being attributed to African-American song. Um, for the early collectors, those songs were um, very uh, almost romantic in the sense that they were the spontaneous effusions of people's own life experiences, and they were very much... Um, caught up within people's lived um, experiences and in their culture. So um, that, is an, that is almost an example, I think, of the return of the repressed, that mm-hmm. everything that the new critics really came to value in poetry was defined in opposition to um, the, this incredible wealth of material that was being excavated in that same moment. Mostly, um, the reason they were ignoring it was mostly, I think, for, for racist reasons. So, and I think that's a really important story to tell, too, because it's a way of thinking about the work of criticism. The new critics are very important in training a whole generation of scholars, and I think even in my own um, educational experience, you know, I can trace their influence, um, how to read, about how to read poetry. And so if the way we've learned poetry is to blank out the, 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 the actual experiences of people, the real, then 
doing this work of trying to re reintroduce this, the songs of um, African-American people um, from that period gives us, a, I think, a much broader idea of what poetry is and can be. So how would you respond to uh, a critique of, of the project that, that might say that you're aestheticizing oppression? It doesn't feel at all like that. In fact, the material that I'm working through is um, is incredibly painful and, and difficult. And one of the real challenges is is not a scholarly one, but I think a, a kind of psychic one um, as that I would share with all the activists and, and scholars who are working in some of the most painful parts of our, of our history. Um, so, for example, I've spent a lot of time thinking about solitary confinement and the psychic effects of solitary confinement and reading... Um, literature written in prison through some, something that's called um, secure housing unit syndrome, which is an actual psychosis that is produced um, when people are uh, abandoned to isolation for long periods of time. Um, and so what this is doing, I think, is um, trying to bring these very painful testimonies and the works of art that were made in these conditions back into a kind of mainstream canon of, um, of some of the most important poets that we, we would turn to if we want to come up with a definition of the lyric. And so um, we, might, we, might want to re we might turn to Wordsworth or um, Dickinson or Milton or so forth if, when we want to think about what the, the lyric is. I'm saying let's read Wordsworth alongside some of the prisoners who were held in, in, in isolation in Eastern State Penitentiary. Let's read Dickinson alongside a contemporary poet who's thinking about um, the Middle Passage as a story that cannot be told um, in order to have a much broader and more inclusive idea of what lyric poetry actually is. But you also talk about the pleasures of bondage. One of the more intriguing parts of the project is um, branching out into BDSM. So um, I'm thinking about the pleasures of constraint. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've been focusing in our conversation on some of the, the, the difficulties and the painful aspects of it. Um, but there's no denying that for many people, pleasure is also, uh, constraint is also associated with, with erotic pleasure. Um, and I take a fairly circuitous route into this topic. I start off by thinking about um, Ovid, the Roman poet, and the way that he submits himself as the slave of love to his mistress Corinna in his elegies. But this submission for him produces a, um, a lot of anxiety, and it results in some very violent attacks, too, on the mistress, in which he imagines with pleasure bite marks on her p pale white skin and scratches on her beautiful face and everything. Um, and so I'm thinking about that submission of the slave of love also in Ovid's verse in relation to the actual verse form. So he writes um, also in a couplet, um, it's called Elegiac Distich. The first line is hexameter, that's six feet, um, and that's associated with epic. The second line is pentameter, five lines. So there's something missing. And that something missing is the epic foot that gets taken away. The verse feels unbalanced. And it's um, Ovid and the, and the Roman elegists' way of turning their back on 
um, the public virtues of heroism that you might associate with the epic and turning inward to a much more domestic space. Um, so I, I, I find this, this missing foot um, really interesting. It's, it's often referred to in the verse as almost a wound or a castration. Um, so that opens up lots of really interesting t um, possibilities in terms of psychoanalytic readings. Absolutely. And you yourself are uh, an accomplished poet. You uh, have published six volumes of poetry. Um, the one on wildfire looks at the cultural meanings of phosphorus from the classical to the present. You have one entitled Mutability that's looking at maternity and infancy from both psychoanalytic uh, points of view as well as uh, being very steeped in child development literature. In, in conclusion, talk about how your own poetry informs this scholarly project. I've just finished a book um, of poetry about drone operations that uses a lot of found text from drone operators, chat rooms, and military manuals, and histories of the emergence of drones as technology. Um, and one of the um, points that people make um, who live in areas where drones are flying is that they sometimes feel like the whole country has been turned into an open-air prison. Um, because you can't go out of your house, you can't go to market, you can't go to school, you can't assemble without the fear that there's going to be an attack. And it really changes everyone's behavior. So that was one space where already the, the, the work I was doing as a, as a poet was interfacing with some of the things I was thinking about in, in this critical project. But I think the, the drone poetics also um, raised a much bigger question for me, which is how one represents and gives space for other voices to be heard within um, American and British poetic and academic discourses. Um, there aren't the journalistic resources necessarily, um, and, and unfortunately there's not also a sufficient interest to justify having accounts from lots of people who are victims of drones about what those experiences are like. So how can we begin to hear those voices again? And one of the things that I really hope that um, both my, my poetry and this book are doing is creating a space in which some of those voices can be heard alongside the, the voices which are more authorized culturally. Um, and throughout that, also always paying attention to my own position as a critic, as a poet, um, someone who, who could potentially have um, a, an exploitative relationship to these materials. How do I position myself and my own, my own privileges as I'm doing this work? Thinking about that, my own subjectivity as a, as a critic, is something that really the, the, the poetic work that I've been doing for the past two decades has really helped me to do. Well, thank you, Andrea Brady. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.